What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll. What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and today, we got a corker. Vision of Disorder's sophomore full-length imprint... But there will be no slumping, as we're joined by Matt Bombach and Mike Fleischman from VOD, who give us an extensive experience on what it was like making and touring that record. From the inclusion of Phil Anselmo of Pantera fame, to touring with Earth Crisis and Sepultura, and the pit stops along the way, like their Resurrecting Reality EP, no stone is left unturned, nor is any string left in standard tuning. But first, Vision of Disorder hail from Long Island, New York which has a rich musical history, especially when it comes to hardcore. One of the biggest and best to break out of that large slab of earth completely surrounded by water is Incendiary, product of New York. Guitarist Brian Audley from Incendiary was kind enough to reminisce about his early exposure to VOD and what makes them legendary for him and his peers. You know, you being in a prominent Long Island hardcore band, I would say by default, you know, VOD had to be a big inspiration for you, a band that you saw when you were younger that uh, was one of a, an early exposure for you to heavy music. But, you know, I could be wrong. So how did you first even become aware of Vision of Disorder? Vision of Disorder was among one of the first hardcore bands I ever heard. Um Basically, my same entry point to like all of hardcore and all of the things I got into was through one of my friends' older brother passed down a mixtape that had a bunch of bands that ended up becoming some of my favorite bands. That's where I heard Silent Majority for the first time. That's where I heard Earth Crisis for the first time. That's where I heard Snapcase and Indecision. And VOD was one of those bands on that tape. And I remember very clearly... The song was Suffer, which still remains one of the best songs and one of my favorite songs by the band. Um, and, you know, from that point on, you know, with hardcore at large, um, it was just kind of like a mission of trying to find as much content and music about these bands that I had just heard on a copy of a copy of a cassette tape. VOD was one of the bands that was kind of easier to find their music at the time because, you know, the self-titled Green Drip record was kind of available more universally in more record stores. And, you know, I was able to, to find that pretty quick. And at the time, I didn't really, I wasn't really able to kind of separate or, or delineate how popular or big or small any band was. So 
any band that had a physical compact disc that you could buy at a store, every band was like Metallica big. You know what I mean? Like every band was playing big shows and, you know, maybe on MTV or something because they had a CD. So when I saw VOD had like a real CD that I could get at, you know, I don't even know where I would have picked, picked, thing, picked this thing up. Let's say nobody beats the Wiz because it's funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, damn, this band, you know, this band must be huge. Then I would later learn that they were from Long Island, which, you know, that's kind of like beyond just, you know, sonically how cool their music is and how that, that may have gone on to influence my music. VOD really made everything like tangible to me. You know what I mean? Because again, to the, the point I was trying to make earlier is like, I thought every band was just untouchable and out of reach and, you know, torn on buses and playing arenas. And it's just like, you know, big rock star stuff. But when I learned that Vision of Disorder was from Long Island, you know, not very far from where I, I am, a couple years older than me, from the same place, doing the same things, like that really kind of like made everything tangible to me. Like, well, if a Vision of Disorder can come from Long Island and go on to have a CD and nobody beats the whiz, then <laughs> damn, maybe, any, you know, maybe if I have a band, I could too. And that really kind of, made just open the door of possibility to everything to me. And obviously, you know, the music speaks for itself and continues to, you know, hit me just as hard today as, as the first time I heard it. Well, that's awesome. I would have never guessed that you, it didn't go the other way that, you know, Long Island and VOD, but you knew who VOD was before you knew they were local heroes. I mean, and I'm with you because <laughs> people probably don't, uh, realize or think about it now because it's so easy that any band can well of course put music on a streaming service but also even pressing a cd is uh much more affordable but back then if you did have a cd you were kind of somebody i mean you were at least doing something where it was cost effective for you to press a cd that was pretty expensive back then yeah yeah and actually that's a good point of clarification that you made like i was definitely not like you know seeing them in playing basement shows and playing the PWAC, which is like, you know, this, this kind of like legendary older Long Island venue. Um, I, I wasn't around for that. That, that was like just slightly before my time. Like I discovered VOD when, when that green drip record came out and then kind of reverse engineered and did my homework to find their earlier material and go on to see like, oh shit, they were playing these like gigantic shows like in places like a few towns away from me. Like that's crazy. And that, that really kind of supports what I was saying earlier about making the whole thing just seem like so much more closer to home literally and figuratively. Yeah, that's a cool point too. Just a, a representation kind of thing. Like you said that uh, if they could do it, then you could do it. I mean, chain wallets were available for you too and you can also get out there. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know what I should, I should mention too? Like again, just that whole idea of like, man, these guys are like, I see a lot of like myself in, in these guys is their portion of the New York hardcore documentary when, you know, many of the other bands that are featured in that are from New York city, you know, the, the mad balls and the, and the crown of thorns and the, and the district nines um, talking about like their experiences and, and like the way that they grew up in New York city. Um, but then when it gets to the VOD's part, you know, I, I vividly remember the footage of them like mowing their lawn and stuff and like hanging out on like their parents' couch in Long Island. And that connected with me, right? That's like, okay, these are my guys. Like that's that's a snapshot of my life. Like the other stuff, you know, I love it sonically and I love the idea of it. It looks so dangerous and crazy and scary to me, which is why I'm drawn to it. But 
I can't act like I'm living that life. I can definitely validate that I am living the life of the guy mowing his lawn and, and showing on his parents' couch. <laughs> right. Well, not only that, that's a good point that you bring up too, is lyrically, you know, maybe you weren't able to relate to a, a Mad Ball or Crown of Thorns as much either because you weren't growing up in the streets, but I'm sure you could relate to the emotional turmoil that Tim was going through at some point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to put it. And, um, you know, I feel like that's why I'm drawn to a lot of the, the New or the New York hardcore bands that I'm drawn to are, are like that. It's usually, you know, VOD and Indecision is always in that conversation. And bands where, like, less urban and, and hard and tough and a little more kind of like secular, I guess, so to speak, and a little more like personal. We'll be back after a quick break. If you love good music and good podcasts, you'll love Roots Music Rambler. I'm Jason Falls. My co-host Francesca Folinazzo and I talk to the singers, songwriters, musicians, and more in Americana, alt-country, bluegrass, folk, blues, and beyond. We share our own takes on the latest news in the space and recommend new music for you to explore every episode. Come get to the roots of the music you love. Find us at RootsMusicRambler.com or go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Roots Music Rambler. Yeah, secular was the word that they would use at Christian school to describe all the music I wasn't allowed to listen to at school. Well, perfect use then. <laughs> if, if it wasn't uh, performance artist Carmen, or I think even DC Talk was considered secular. I don't know how deep you go into the Christian rock music scene, but uh, Carmen used to pack very, out very stadiums. Shallow. <laughs> okay. There was okay. this guy named Carmen, and he would pack out, I'm talking full arenas with this like vaguely gospel music, like not even... Like, like you know how people talk about the Beach Boys now and that back when they came out, yeah. they were like, yo, this was rock and roll. Like, this was dangerous. Um, it's kind of like that where it sounds but – it, but in the mid-90s, like at the same time that VOD is big, there's this guy, Carmen, doing very, very slightly more aggressive than gospel music songs, but like performing them in a way like Alice Cooper would perform a song, you know, where there's like props Got and it. stuff. Well, shock rock, yeah. Just blowing up, just taking over the Bible Belt. So being somebody that got into VOD with the Green Drip album, what was it like for you as a fan when you first heard Imprint? I remember like very much anticipating Imprint and, you know, it really being at a time where like you didn't really know anything, like when anything was going to happen, you know, um, short of maybe seeing like an ad in a magazine one time, if it had a release date, other times you're kind of just waiting for it to show up at the record store. Um, and I remember, I mean, honestly, I remember liking it right off the bat. I, I definitely wasn't, you know, my ears weren't sophisticated enough to kind of notice really any differences in the production, which now are kind of like clear as day. Um, I was just stoked on a new VOD record. I knew that it sounded super angry. Um, I was blown away that they got Phil and Thelmo to sing on a song because I was was am a gigantic Pantera fan. And I guess that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier too. It's like, oh man, these guys are up there with Pantera. They got the guy on the song, you know? It kind of just like reinforced that rock star gigantic band status that I already thought that they had. Yeah, man. I I mean I loved it right out of the gates. And I remember I, I think I actually had a seven inch from them that had one of the songs that I had an early version of one of the songs that went on to be on imprint. Um, I think it's clone, like one of the, on the, one of the last songs on the record. So, you know, I, I kind of had something familiar on the release to, to kind of orient myself around, but yeah, man, I was, I was stoked on it. And 
I think the first time I got to see VOD and maybe the only time I got to see them while they were like, you know, their first, first and like an active band was around the time of that record. They played a show at a venue in Bayshore on Long Island called the Swing Set. I think it was VOD, Final Majority Tension. Yeah, I remember uh, when Imprint came out and knowing this guy who I probably have never talked to since, but for whatever reason, at the time, we were close enough that he was like, yo, Phil Anselmo is singing on a song with Tim on this Imprint record, and it's amazing. And I was like, so it's like a, it's a duet? Like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't even. <laughs> like, you don't get how death vocals work. Yeah, I couldn't really wrap my head around. I was like, what do you mean they're singing together? And the story that he told me, which has since been debunked, is he's like, yeah, and they were competing with each other, and uh, Tim Williams from VOD busted his eye blood vessel out of his face trying to scream as hard as Phil. And I was like, well, yo, if there's blood involved, well, let's, you know, cue up the track. So uh, I remember. Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> I remember that that that's, being like dude, that's funny, <laughs> a captivating thing for me where I was like, oh my God, they're screaming so hard that it's exploding blood vessels. Like that was out of a movie to me. And then when I heard the song, I believed it. I believed it for like 20 years until <laughs> they told me that it wasn't true. Yeah, I mean, that's the type of mythology that could exist pre-internet, right? Like, like now you're like a Google search away from like debunk, like confirming or denying that. But at the time, I mean, that's kind of like, I guess that's like the uh, LAHC version of Marilyn Manson removing his own ribs or being Paul from the Wonder Years. <laughs> right. Well, it's more so that you're one mention of something that means anything to you and somebody else Googling it and telling you, no, you're wrong 10 seconds later. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the other thing with VOD was like, they were definitely a band that had like something for everybody and like a crossover thing. So like in high school, or I think I was in either late middle school or early high school, like nobody is really, like it's difficult to find anybody who's into underground music period or let alone very specifically defined hardcore but vod was a band kind of like heat breed where like even the guys who were you know if you found somebody that was into like pantera and metallica and, and i think it's a little early for slipknot at this time but like into like more like bigger metal new metal stuff like they know about vod so it kind of allows you to at least have the same conversation with some people and have something in common with other people you're around at the time and just kind of like working with what you got some dude that i know from my lacrosse team that oh yeah vod shit's pretty heavy you want to go see him yeah sure you know like that allows me to at least expand my radius of you know socially people i can hang out with and that are kind of into something similar they're definitely one of my favorite bands ever they're one of the bands that have, has stood the test of time you know i'll still go see them every time they, they play brooklyn yeah, it hits me just as hard. I have like kind of like a growing appreciation for them musically and like what they accomplished at the time. The mark that they've left on Long Island music and like every generation of Long Island hardcore after is is undeniable. Dude, they, they never really stopped, man. The, the later couple of records they put out, like post-reunion, still fucking riff too. Like a lot of that sounds like very authentic VOD. So I would I would urge anybody that, you know, hasn't, that maybe hasn't gotten around to checking those records out yet or maybe didn't listen past, you know, uh, it, when it was first released. Go back and check those out. Thanks so much to Brian for taking the time out to talk to us about VOD. 
And you can check out Incendiary on Instagram at IncendiaryHC. They got new shows and merch coming. I'm positive of it because they are a non-stop machine, as any fan of that band knows. Now that brings us to present day in our story. Imprint. Imprint's about to come out. Now, if you haven't already listened to the episode on the self-titled Green Drip album with Mike Kennedy and Jeremy Bohm of Touche Amore, I forgive you. But go ahead and do that now so you're all caught up. But basically, to give you a little Reader's Digest version, which was a magazine that they used to have in my dentist's office, 1996, the self-titled Vision of Disorder, a.k.a. The Green Drip, is released. And yes, it is widely heralded by us, the fans, as a classic, but the band was not happy with how that record sounded. All right, so they put out this album that they're kind of disappointed by. They go out on the OzFest with all of their Roadrunner peers, and they come back, and they're determined to make something that they're going to be proud of. And that's where we find our heroes today, Matt Baumbach and Mike Fleischman of the band, to tell us exactly how that dream came true. With 1998's Imprint... Green Drip comes out. You guys go out on OzFest. You know, that's a big deal as well. You're gaining momentum. You already had a huge swell of momentum leading up to self-titled, of course, which is what uh, resulted in you even getting the, the the offers from different labels, of course, going with Roadrunner. But after that album comes out, uh, there's some change in personnel in Roadrunner. They're kind of reformatting and refocusing what they're doing. And I'm sure as a band, you're doing the same thing. You're wanting to grow and, and move forward, go into the next step. And I would say that imprints um, is interesting because usually when a band has uh, a lot of success with an album, you know, the next step, especially on Roadrunner, they normally go in a little bit more of a commercial direction. And especially with you touring with all these commercially successful bands um, at that time after Green Drip, I would say Imprint is actually kind of the other way around. It's even more aggressive. You know, it's very, um, very uh, chaotic at some point. And I always kind of describe this album as like when you're getting in an argument with somebody and you're already kind of pissed off. And as you're talking through it, you're getting even angrier. So you just start yelling more and more. Like that's how this album feels like. It starts off like you're kind of angry. And then as the album goes through, it's just uh, you're, you're screaming and, you know, and then it kind of barely chills out by the time Jada Bloom comes in, but you're still, you're still pretty pissed off. You're just kind of making your final points. So is that something you would agree with? Do you feel like imprint is an even more aggressive release than self-titled was? I will just start by saying very astute observation, but the, the choice of the sound of imprint was born out of our unhappiness with how thin and unorganic the first, the green drip sounded to our ears. So the only thing I can say is that Imprint's the first time I think the band actually sounds like what the band sounds like, you know, like from a live perspective, recorded perspective, whatever it is, we wanted to make sure it didn't sound um, forced. You know, there's nothing forced there. It's just very organic. And, and really in that record, what you hear is us just literally playing um, pretty much the basics of that album are all live. You know, it's, it's uh, the, the a majority of it's not like the first record, which was like, you know, it's trying to find yeah. the right tempo and all that. 
We were way too young. We had no guidance. We made horrible decisions. Everything that went into it was wrong. And then you, you brought up our experience on the OzFest. And um, we did everything wrong on that. We could do a whole <laughs> just about how bad we screwed up our, our opportunity on the OzFest. But, you know, but we were on that same tour with another Roadrunner band who, who we felt was getting favored much greater than us. Yeah. And, you know, we, we pulled up in a, in a horrible little, not even a Winnebago, it was a shuttle bus. They had a full bus. They had a sound man. They had a tour manager. They were getting salaries. They had tour support. We had some, but we were in the same slot pretty much. You know, at that point we had sold more albums. We felt like we had more of a name and their, their riffs you could play if you cut all your fingers off and had a, had a, you know, a stub on your hand. And I think our, you know, especially Matt, because of how skilled of a guitar player he is, I think our attitude for our next album is we're going to play circles around these bands yeah. and, and really defy what was, seemed to be the direction of heavy music at that time. What's funny, too, is that we were getting influenced by different things. And like a lot of people, uh, I think, don't realize how much VOD listened to different types of music. So like Mike's older brother was like incredible influence for us because he got us into like prog stuff. And there was a lot of technicality and all that stuff. And I remember thinking at the time, like almost intentionally trying to write something that was actually physically hard to do. Like, you know, and also like I had an instrument at the time that allowed more diversity and like faster type of guitar playing, faster riff kind of stuff. And, and I remember really seriously thinking that like, okay, I want to make something that I know will be a challenge to do well you have to say what kind of it's very important to share what kind of guitar you got <laughs> it's that uh, er, ernie ball uh music man the eddie van halen the eddie van halen wolfgang uh was it called the wolfgang at the time uh, it was the uh, the ernie ball music man eddie van halen model yeah. which was like you know it was a game changer for those riffs i'd have to say yeah it was, it was smaller so because it's smaller you can do more faster and like it, it, it kind of influenced a lot of uh just a lot of challenging things to do. Like, uh, I think like landslide's a good example of that, like kind of really trying to push the envelope, but even more so not only in a heavy direction, but also in a technical direction. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Nah, man. So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little? You mean? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying. Oh, yeah. I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. Hey, we, we, we all artists, man. We go. You feel me? We gonna have this like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right now. With this I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I ain't gonna don't lie. Play, don't it, play with it. No. Take that shit serious. Yeah. I recall at um, we were on this is when we were on tour for the Green Drip with uh, we were in Florida about to play a show with Earth Crisis and I remember it was at Soundcheck and the, the first riff that you wrote for Imprint was was, the, was Colorblind. Oh really? It was yeah, and I remember coming to the stage to plug in and you and Brendan were playing. And I remember thinking, like, all right, we're gonna have a good we're gonna have a good second album. Uh, very early on, we did three songs. Well, that were the first for imprint, I think, right? It was Colorblind, Rebirth, and uh, Imprint itself. Yeah, well, the, the second, the first full song that we completed for Imprint was Imprint. Was Imprint. Yeah. yeah. 
before between the two records, you put out this seven inch with crisis records, which is kind of like an imprint of uh, an imprint, which is thematic of revelation. And it has a demo of clone, which of course ends up being on imprint. So was clone not originally in your mind, part of the imprint sessions, or that was written after these original oh, songs? That, um, I don't remember the actual time frame. You know, it's so strange because <laughs> we, we got home from the green drip tour and then which we probably got home. It was end of September. We came home from Japan. So we did, we did the Ozfest. Then we went to, we did a U.S. tour with uh, Bloodlet and uh, Day in the Life. And then from there, we left and went to Japan and finished the Green Drip touring really in Japan. We came home, this is the end of September. And we went, we started writing Imprint. And we wrote the whole thing between October of 97 and March of 98, the whole, the whole album. So all we did during that time period was, was so we rehearsed. The, another thing about Imprint is that we play, we rehearsed, which, you know, normally we would rehearse like for the first album would be at night. We'd be drinking, we'd be partying a little bit. Imprint was all during the day it, because we had nothing. To, we didn't work because we had just been touring and stuff like that. But like one o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, it would be in the afternoon. We'd just be guzzling coffees and not really partying you know we partied a lot during that time it was always after practice and that's probably why it's so uh coffee yeah because <laughs> yeah, the album is definitely more uh like i mentioned earlier chaotic but in that chaos is precision so i would feel like you going into recording this album would have really had to have these songs down and it sounds like that's exactly what you were doing just really like fine-tuning them and making them perfect right so from touring from that touring cycle of the green drip we were so we were a, a unit you know we were a unit and 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 really um i mean if you're going back to resurrecting reality i think that that was giving credit to the label i uh <laughs> i believe that that was an idea to kind of get us back in the uh street cred area because there was i mean it's hard to it's hard to, to, to look back on things now, but to imagine that when our first album came out, there was kind of a, uh, there was that sellout backlash too smooth of an album. Yeah. Like, um, you're not you a know, hardcore band, not a hardcore band. And we, you know, it's road. I mean, it's freaking Roadrunner. Like that's all of our, every one of our favorite bands is on Roadrunner. It's, you know, it's, you're talking about Sepultura, Typo Negative, Life of Agony. Uh, who the hell else was on? Freaking Fear Factory. Fear Factory. Like, I mean, it's what that's a set. Those are sellout then. Like, I, I didn't, I thought that, you know, what's the difference? Hardcore can't be associated with like the heaviest shit you ever heard in your life. Like, it, it doesn't, didn't make any sense. And that it was funny too, because I feel like at the, at the time, I felt like because Madball was on the label, it was almost like justification that we can be on that label. Like, you know, it's almost like you can't say shit about us not being hardcore when the same label has Madball. A metal, like it was such a weird, it's yeah. so weird how hard the, the lines were at that point. And like how there was a backlash about us signing with, with Roadrunner, which again, like I said, it's just a, it's a heavy, it's a super heavy label, but that still was looked at as like almost signing like, you know, like a, like a Britney Spears style. Label and it's funny like too, because it plays into your psyche. I know it played into Tim too, because I feel like there's definitely moments in VOD lyric writing and stuff where it is almost like backlash. You know, kind of like almost talking smack back to the crowds that are talking to us. You know, uh, I, I definitely feel that influence, you know, and sometimes it's almost like 
you know, I don't know, like a lot of people talk shit. And I think even a song like Up and You on Imprint is almost like a fuck you back to them. Like you talk a lot of shit. We'll, we'll put out this track that's gonna, you know, say we're Up and You kind of, you know, uh, thought process. It was very machismo, but at the time, that's just how pissed off we were. But it, and, it, and also, we, we were in kind of agreement that the album didn't come out heavy enough. I know people look back at at the Green Drip, and I hate to talk bad about it because it's some people really like that album. When I listen to other Roadrunner albums, like I could see how like maybe Fear Factory look at like the manufacturer now might be like, oh, it was so thin or something like that. But like I hear it, and it's like the best thing I ever heard in my life. You know what I mean? So I hate to say like, oh, it sounds terrible because someone it sounds good to someone who liked it at the time. You know what I mean? But to our ears, it was like we already had, like it just didn't come off as um, as meaty and organic as like we we put out still before that, and we were happy with that sound. But when we when we when it got time to to release our real album on Roadrunner Records, we thought that the sound quality should have taken a step up and just quality overall. And it just kind of like it just didn't connect with us when we heard when our ears heard it. Well, we know that we're not going to do that. You know, we know we're not going to do the Green Drip. We want to do almost like not the polar opposite, but just make sure that nothing sounds clean. Make sure nothing sounds safe. You know, aggression was the main key. I think. So again, credit to the label, the the our A and R person at the time. One of the people he recommended to get that effect was producer Dave Sardi, who um, we met with once. And just everything he said was just great. Everything we heard him say, we were just like, you know, he was like, I want you guys to have a sound. Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to come down and listen to you guys play. The first album we recorded, I hate to keep talking bad about the first album. We had a producer who had never heard any of our songs. He pressed record before he, he would record each song. There was no, he didn't listen to anything. He had no idea what we sounded like, had no idea what we were supposed to be going for. It was just a job. He didn't have any vision or any, you know, but we, Dave Sardi, you know, was familiar with us, came to our practices a couple of times, sat in the middle of the room on the floor. And I think he just was like, I'm going to make this album sound like what it sounds like when I come to practice the and they're in a small room and I sit in the middle of the floor. And I think that's what he did with the production of the album. It's like if I if I came in that Indian style in the middle of these guys playing, what, what does it sound like? And he just recreated that. I was going to ask you that if uh, they were who kind of brought in Dave Sardi. Of course, at that time, he had just recently done the Orange 9mm album um, that was their kind of major label. Uh, breakthrough and i know that jamie Locke, who was the producer of green drip you know universally has been kind of seen as a like a good engineer not necessarily a hands-on producer and that's something we didn't know about him we didn't know that that we thought madball sounded good and, and they offered us that that option but really at the time for our first album um we had done a demo at legend studios which is where vod recorded our legendary first uh, yellow demo with you know the original formula for failure but to our eyes it's like we just got signed to roadrunner we're not going to go to the local demo recording studio down the street and do an album like <laughs> we're not doing that we're going to do it. we want to work with a professional and the madball album sounded good to our dear, our ears little did we know that it was that matt henderson producing and jamie lock was hitting record <laughs> Now, one thing that I noticed about the sound, too, of Imprint, and you can tell me if this was deliberate or if I'm even making it up, but it sounds like each guitar is in each ear. Like, yes. uh, there's, it's not stereo. It's kind of like each one is mono. Is that something you guys deliberately wanted? That's not something that we wanted as much as I think that's what Dave Sardi heard. 
I can say it actually sounds like, like what Mike was saying before, you're a tight unit coming off tour, you're rehearsing every day and everything. It got to the point where I think in the writing sessions for Imprint that we were so in tune with each other that me and Mike uh, Kennedy weren't even like, even like uh, showing each other the parts we were playing. <laughs> so almost to the point where even similar to the vocals with Beauty, well, the first time we really heard what each one of us were doing was mostly when it was recorded. You know, like the, it's so chaotic in that record that like there's a lot of parts where I didn't know what Mike was doing. And I think he didn't know what I was doing until it actually got on tape. You know, and, and it kind of shows, I think, how tight of a unit we were at the time. Plus, I will also say that Brendan finished his drums for Imprint the first day at the studio. Yeah. So we went in, we set up. And 12 hours later, Brendan was done with his drums. So already kicked it was just like, you're done. Get out of here. <laughs> like wow. to him. That but he had us all set up and just and he just said, play every song. Quick, quick, quick. We played him once or twice. And then he was just yeah. like, told Brendan, you're out of here. Job like, done. that's it. But um, going back to the guitars, I, he was very persuasive with that. So even if Mike and Matt wanted, you know, that stereo guitar sound, he would he would put it on and be like, eh. And then he'd put it into both speakers and look at us and be like, ah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I can disagree with him now. I thought, eh? Eh? <laughs> it was cool sounding because, you know, we had never been produced that way. And I think that's similar to the live element of the band is that, you know, you hear it that way live. And I guess that's what he heard too. Yeah, that's, that's what you're right. He's sitting in the middle of the room. He's hearing one guitar to his right, one guitar to his left. So that's what he, he wanted that recreated. And it, it just was tr- trying to create a unique sound. Was some was like our dream. Like we want us yeah. to have so, like a sound where you hear it and you say, "Oh, that's them." And I think all these years later, you put it on, and immediately that album has a sound to it, which was like is a, is a is an accomplishment for us because you know the other albums, some of the other albums have a sound to it, but it's not necessarily like one that you want more. <laughs> you want more. And the weird thing about Imprint <laughs> is I can definitely say I don't know if there's another new record that sort of sounds like it because it's almost like a mistake. Does that make sense? Like <laughs> it, it doesn't sound like anything more so just because i think he really did just go kind of go in let's say it sounds good press record let's do this you know i feel like it became a trend an idea he had which was he told us too after we finished he was like i get this when we get this mixed and mastered it's going to be the loudest cd in everyone's collection so when they put it on it's gonna they're gonna have to turn it down and i think that bands i think that became a trend and i mean maybe he didn't start that but I think there became a trend in, in bands doing that to try to have that loud, like old, like oversaturated, like too, <laughs> too loud CD. But I remember thinking at the time we were like, yeah, that's well, the best and, and it's funny because when we got the master, it actually was so loud that I actually you was like concerned. <laughs> I was like, is, are you sure that's supposed to be that loud? Like, is it not? Is it redlining a little, you know? You know, famously, uh, Rick Rubin does that. And he worked with Rick Rubin on the system of a down self-titled at the same yeah. time as this. So maybe. He, um, we hadn't even heard of, I had heard of system. We had heard of system of the band. We had, they weren't that, we didn't know how big they were, uh, they were going to get, but I remember he was telling us that they, that they were into our stuff. He had heard of them, had heard of us through them. And he was just like, you know, but they're always talking about, <laughs> they're always talking about bands. Like, like they'd be like, Oh, Deftones, Deftones. And I'm just like, Oh, why? <laughs> like that was Dave Sardi's opinion of, of Deftones and all the, um, you know, anything else that was going on at that time, the corn, Deftones. I remember you were like, you know, what's the guitar sound? Alice in Chains. And he was like, oh, like, <laughs> like he didn't yeah. want to hear anything that was like, you know, smooth or commercial or like, you know, he wanted everything to be really ear, organic. you know, hurt your ears. Like yeah. let's do stuff that hurts your ears. Analog and organic. Yeah. Very, like, I will time. tell you that while during our sessions, 
he got a call and he shared this with us to remix that became a hit right at that time was the song by Fastball. Um, uh, they packed up their bags and they, or whatever, they started packing. Remember, he also said, I, I might be uh, in the uh, contention to uh, work with Radiohead. Yeah. And we were like, but what about our album? He was just like, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> that was his response. The song is called The Way. You got almost, to, you, you were going all the way through the hook and stopped at the title. <laughs> Without ever knowing the way. You were saying that the album sounds like a mistake, and I know what you mean by that, but it almost sounds like, too, and I think you'll understand what I'm saying when I say this, that uh, that none of you are playing the same song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> totally. But it all goes uh, together. It makes sense. But it, like you said, I mean, and it makes sense, too, when you tell me that you didn't legitimately know what the other parts were that people were playing. Like, you all kind of knew the the general structure of the song and then just wrote your own <laughs> and it makes it even sound more like that because it is panned ear to ear. So I'm hearing this guitar playing something totally different from this guitar. And then the drums are crazy. And then your bass is so thick and, and meaty. Yeah. You guys, did you guys spend a lot of time on that tone for the bass? Nope. I plugged, <laughs> I plugged in and, and we recorded. Yeah. But that's also, <laughs> I think Sardi knew. Yeah. Uh, style of amp and everything. I think he yeah, it was just exactly what amp, it was just ampeg sans amp. Yeah. Play and 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 that's it. You know, acceptable, acceptable to him. Weird part about the guitars on imprint in general was that uh, in the umpteenth hour we realized, and this shows you how almost like dyslexic and, and uh, removed me and Kennedy were from each other's parts. Uh, we had two songs on that record that were tuned very low, tuned down to uh, A. And we didn't know until both guitars were fully tracked that they were totally out of phase. <laughs> like they were to the point where like, if you hit a note, it would sound like wobbly, like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, totally out of, out of phase. It, it just kind of, we didn't give a fuck because at the time we were just playing, you know, we you mean that you both weren't tuned to the same. Not, it, not that we weren't tuned, but there's a way to set up a guitar that it would both, uh, um, basically be if you hit a note it's not going to go above or below the note uh too much because the guitar has been set up properly like warren lee will, will give a great session on this he's a tutorial <laughs> but uh you know at the time we weren't we didn't know how to tune down a guitar or anything we just put the tuning on the guitar and, and you know put heavier strings and just made it lower so it, it actually came to the time where we were almost done with recording all the guitars and we heard it together for the first time. Me and Kennedy both had to bang it out in like, I want to say like two, three takes most. Both those Rebirth of Tragedy and uh, uh, 12 Steps. Those two songs were literally quit takes of me and Mike just going back in and having to re-record guitars. After DeSardi took our guitars, went to like 48th Street and got them like guitar doctored or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know. But it sounded, I remember still to this day, until to this day, if you listen to the end of um, 12 Steps, it is at that too. But you can actually yeah, hear I'll, it. Yeah, yeah, but it's got that got that vibe to it. Yeah, no, it's heavy as hell. It's, it's one of the darker endings of the, of the album, but like it's, it's actually definitely out of phase. Um, another credit to Dave Sardi is that he would use the term, which uh, I'd never heard anybody use it before. But instead of cheesy, he would say, oh, if you had an idea that wasn't, that was kind of, Cheesy. He would describe it as a bit Sam Ashy, wouldn't you say? <laughs> <laughs> I love that that term of like. I knew exactly what he meant when he said a bit Sam Ashy. But I remember when um, he didn't go in the. He had his engineer set up the amps, and he liked um, the guitar sound that he, I think it was Mike. You had the Mesa at yeah. that point. Mike was using the fifty one fifty, and he was like, "Oh, it's a great guitar sound." 
And uh, Kennedy was like, yeah, it's the PV. He's like, that's a PV? That's a, he was like so insulted that he was actually, that he complimented a, a PV. <laughs> and it was also because Kennedy's at the time playing <laughs> Paul Reed Smith through a PV. So I feel like the Paul Reed Smith is actually a big part of well, the that. Well, that was, you know, the PV, we, so the PV 5150, we have to credit with touring with Machine Head yeah, yeah, because they will, you know, we saw that they had PV. And everyone ended up using goddamn PV 5150s, but then, you know, along the way. But they, they were one of the first bands we saw using the PV 5150s and saying that was the secret to their heavy uh, guitar sound. So immediately, well, Kennedy, besides, after... After spending thousands on the uh, tri- on the triaxis, totally digital, we uh, for our first European Kennedy took money without without approval. He bought the most expensive head in existence at that time. Thousands. The tri- wh- who who made the triaxis? Uh, it's called the triaxis, and it was a completely like digital head. And he heard that like maybe Hetfield had it or something, and <laughs> so he goes up to our. He never could figure out how to use it. But so he shows up before we even tried it. He shows up at this huge rack box for, and we're getting on the plane. We're checking in um, for our European tour. And he's going to he's going to unleash the triaxis. And he rolls up with it in the case. And the uh, the the the, uh, the person we're checking in with that works for the airline just looks at Kennedy, looks at the uh, road case and just shakes their head. No. And then he just has to walk. His girlfriend had to, had walk to take out. it home, remember? She's like, <laughs> yeah, she had, to, <laughs> yeah, she had to take it home by herself, lift it into the. Uh, but yeah, but it actually, I don't know if he, maybe one practice he played, I think he brought it to um, Paul Crook of, uh, of Anthrax, Mid-low I think thing. tried to help him figure out how to use it. Because it was like, you know, if something was digital back then, like you, you know, before the age of computers, you had to like hit buttons four times and then hitting another like to set to set something. Like it wasn't like something. It was like more. Oh, every button you hit it was. Like, <laughs> when you toured with Machine Head, did you guys get any workouts in with Logan? On Ozfest, definitely. He would always, you know, Logan would be would be walking by. <laughs> he never knew when he'd stop. I'm like, dude, you want to work? <laughs> you want to work out? But anyway, the only ex- <laughs> his his favorite exercise. So they they had um. I, did we have the bench or did they have it? I can't remember. We but we did. had the sit-up. I bought like the sit-up bench, like one of those decline sit-up benches. And if you and um two 40-pound dumbbells. So if you wanted to do bench, you you'd um put the, the bench on a road case and you could do, you know, some some bench. And if you wanted to do sit-ups, but uh Logan, the secret to his look, <laughs> decline bench. <laughs> he loved doing deep. Decline bench. And I remember the funny story that we always have with Brendan was uh <laughs> Brendan got got on for a set of decline bench and his head was like red like a tomato. And then Logan looked at him and just went, breathe, dude. <laughs> but we had a lot of um we had a lot of fun with machine head. I mean it was us, cold chamber. Machine Head, Typo, and Fear Factory. Whoa. That's just meeping all over. That's meeping across America. It was me. We were meeping, man. You mentioned how you guys were like a unit going into this album. Uh, Mm -hmm. On self-titled, you, Mike, are not even credited as a member of the band. So what happened where you were kind of reacclimating yourself and really committing to wanting to make that happen? Uh, Well, I quit for a month, and it was the month where they made the CD jacket. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was spite. It was an unfortunate month, <laughs> but that's how bad the experience was of that first album. That yeah, was supposed to show you. But um, we all we kissed and made up, luckily, and um, 
but yeah, I mean, I was out of the band. I think they had a guy play a few shows. Oh, um, the band bad balls wasn't, you know, awesome. I had the show that, you know, good luck finding a good bass player, man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I came back uh, very, very swiftly. I can't remember. I, they actually had me fill in for the guy because he was so embarrassing. It was a New York show. <laughs> and um, I played, yeah, it was like a CV. It was like some kind of fest thing. Like so I filled in. And then from there, like, you guys had to get rid of him. And I remember um, he came to the Wetlands show and had to, like, give me. It was really my amp. It was the amp that yeah, I, yeah. it was my amp. But it was paid for with band money, so I didn't give it back. But then he had to show up and hand me the amp. And uh, he, had, he watched the show. It was really sad. I hated this. I saw him in the audience, like, yeah. like trying to get into it and stuff. And like he had um, just played like three days. Not earlier. to talk bad, you know, I mean, he probably liked the band, but um, it just was really an uncomfortable experience for me, particularly. <laughs> <laughs> You're the real victim here when you quit the band. <laughs> what came first, the idea for the cover of the album, the name of the album, or the song imprint? The song imprint and uh, the cover of the album. Yeah, that was that was Tim's idea. The, you know, the, the the lyrics are always Tim. Song titles are always Tim. And um, the, the album cover idea was Tim, too, because that was his uh, that's his head. <laughs> right. Was it also his idea to be the only person pictured on the back of the CD? No, no, no. Well, I think that picture was taken from the uh, Warp Tour. But, yeah. you know, you know, you know, what's weird is some bands have a lot of, um, you know, <sighs> The first album was, again, this is all just like results of the first album. We had so much difficulty getting an, uh, uh, an album cover for the first album. And then the second album, Imprint, we were really happy with how it came out. We yeah. were like, that, that looks cool. They just sent us a layout. And I think we were just like, instead of arguing or changing anything, I think it was yeah, just like, it. just say yes. Because to go through the painstaking, I don't like that picture, move this to the left. Move, like it just wasn't worth it at that time the whole attitude of imprint was like go 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 and it and it we should have just kept that a whole yeah, <laughs> like just do everything and don't look back and just keep moving 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 moving, moving. i think a big part of the cover too is that like on the first record you know i think you know i don't know if you remember this or not but this there's the green drip but there was also like the pink drip there no was, i don't you know, i wasn't i wasn't you see i get to i get to make fun of the green drip because that green drip was chosen during that like month I wasn't yeah. in the band. At the time, I think what with the drip crap, we're, we were thinking like, make something that looks like, almost like uh, the underground uh, New York rave scene bullshit. You know, like almost like uh, we're going to be so different because it's going to be uh, more EDM looking instead of heavy metal. And, and they had the drip, but drip in different colors. And I wish to this day I had those different uh record covers because all of them just looked like really bad frankie bones covers like <laughs> but the imprint actually looked cool you know as a, as a record cover you know like when we saw the actual picture and then what the arts department did to it to make it a little bit more uh questionable and almost like what is that kind of thing um right so mike the, just said that it's uh it's you know tim's head but can you just tell me a little bit more about what the cover is for people that don't know uh, it's his uh, face from the hospital after getting slashed uh, in a fight. Unfortunately, that happened on my birthday, believe it or not. Uh, we were at a club and, and unfortunately, you know, things happened and he got his face halfway cut off. And uh, it was crazy because that picture is uh, pretty much after, you know, the I guess the plastic surgery and everything. 
mid course, I guess maybe. And then no, that was before. It's from before. the picture. The original picture is very graphic. You don't. Yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> you don't bloody. want to see it. Yeah, it's really bloody. So they took it and were able to manipulate it a little bit. So it's almost questionable what it is. But you know, if you saw the actual photograph or were explained what it is, I think you could clearly see that it's a face that's been cut. Every part you see the dark red, that's that's blood and. The skin on top is his cheek. That is the what the if you didn't know that is what the lyrics are uh, about as well to that song. Yeah, and print itself is is all about that incident. So, you know, it's it's almost I think it's good too because it's you know you talk about negatives turning into positives. I think it's bold of Tim at the time to be able to put himself out there that much. You know, that's uh, obviously a life changing experience, and you know to be like okay, make put this on the freaking cover. It's crazy. Yeah, that's kind of a testament uh, and a trademark of Vision of Disorder anyway, right? It's just kind of how open and honest Tim's lyrics are, even if maybe sometimes they're a little abstract, like you just mentioned, as far as Mm -hmm. you might not immediately hear the song imprint and be like, oh, this is about him getting cut in the face. But you can get get that whatever he's saying, he means very passionately, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think also with Tim, it's funny on that record. One thing I can say is, is because of that tight unit we were at the time, we were also writing the songs um, organically and uh, on the spot because of what Tim was doing. So there were a couple times in that record where um, I can distinctly remember being like, okay, what part comes next? And it would, most of the time it would always be, okay, we're going to change the part. You know, we never really repeated much on input, but like, I remember because of what Tim was doing, feeling like, okay, this is where it can go the next part, you know? Uh, like the break, the first breakdown in landslides like that, you know, like Tim singing that why you two whole yeah. Years. Then going into that next breakdown was literally just because Tim did that in the moment. It was what can we do next? You know, you know, musically on imprint, the way I remember every practice session was you come in with a riff, Mike comes in with a riff, I come in with a riff, and it was almost like challenging the next guy. Like I'm mm-hmm. going to play this riff, top this riff. And then he'd, he'd top it. And then it would be like my turn. You got to yeah. <laughs> you top this. Right? I'm going to play this All right now. I'm gonna... <laughs> or, or maybe one guy would be like, okay, so that's that riff. But what if you play it this way? What if, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like Mike, I can say Fleisch is, is a huge part of my writing because I can, I can't tell you how many riffs I come in with where it's been like, maybe the percentage of the riff that's used is about like 75%. But that extra 25% is Fleisch saying, no, what if you tried it this way? You're almost like reverse it, you know, do your ending first and do your beginning at the end, you know, and it always ends up being a better riff. So, you know, that's just part of writing together for a long time. And, and, and the deciding factor is always Brendan. He, yeah. He tells us whether it's going <laughs> to, he says, no, <laughs> but it's, it's tough with Brendan because you can play, you know, you play two notes and he makes it, he can make it sound good, but it's still up to him whether the riff is going <laughs> to, I don't know. And it's very <laughs> obvious when Brendan yeah. likes it or doesn't like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why it's hard. it's very hard because Mike is and and you know and some of us are more sensitive than others. Like Mike is very sensitive with his riffs. Some of us like Matt. If you if you throw out one of his riffs, that just means that he's gonna he's gonna come back with an even harder. You know what I mean? That's like the the best thing you can do for him is tell him that riff's not good because then you're guaranteed he's gonna write. Okay, he's gonna come back with a with twenty more good riffs, but you know, but Brendan, it's hard because Brendan's the ultimate is the ultimate judge. So yeah. he's like the guy you stand. He has the gavel, you know. So it's. <laughs> and, and there's also I feel for Brendan at times because a lot through that writing session was unfortunately him having to hear the three of us explain to him what we think drums could be on these riffs, 
So that there's nothing worse I can imagine well, than seeing me being like Brendan, try like do, 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 do. like the, the stupidest thing of all time is I promised me writing drums for Brendan. You know, so just from an artist perspective, I could see Brendan getting frustrated in that as well. You know, just the idea of these three guys almost like, how about this? It was always there was never a time where it was like, okay, that's good. Let's stick with that and just keep doing that. It was always like Mike said, it just kept on changing. Everything was just moving forward, moving forward, never stopping. And that's how we wrote it so fast. An interesting thing too, about the album and you kind of uh, touched on it that, you know, not a whole lot of uh, repetition on it, but there is things that are catchy and hooky, you know, even um, vocally, I don't think that Tim, you know, there's not really too many choruses like you would really explore on from bliss to devastation, but almost Tim's just vocal, regardless if he's repeating a, you know, phrase or refrain or whatever from earlier on the song becomes like part of the hook and some of the riffs become part of the hook as well. Just like, you know, you kind of latch onto those. So there's lots of catchy parts, but to your, uh, to your point earlier, there's not a whole lot that just are, repetitive like a a traditional chorus or something like that would be it also comes down to to a lot of that that uh the brendan influence also is he well he refuses to play the same feel even if it's on the same album like he's like oh we did that feel like you know four songs ago like it's just like it's just a feel for a part like you play you know (laughs) you can just go to a straight beat for a minute but you know that that that's credit to also the time in music and the time the bands we were playing with, like, you know, where you're, you're comp, it's not competition, but your camaraderie with bands is, is Candiria and earth crisis. And, and there's so many, what's that? Neurosis. Neurosis. There's so many bands, you know, exploring different uh, rhythms and different things and, and challenging. And we wanted to be more, you know, we wanted to also be badass musicians, <laughs> you know, at the same time we had that, we wanted to, to challenge um, ourselves and listeners musically and not just be, again, like I said, we were revolting against that one note at a time shit that was coming out at that time. I think if you ask Kennedy right now, does Matt play what you are correctly? You still say no. (laughs) (laughs) I can attest to that because I tried out for VOD on DTO. And um, well, first of all, you guys didn't tell me that the goddamn seven inch was tuned uh, half step up. Right, right, right. I tried out for a song, a half step off for the goddamn. They they gave. So I had the seven awful. inch. I didn't know. So the, the little tidbit about the DTO seven inch is that Kennedy tuned his guitar wrong and recorded the parts. <laughs> so they all had to tune. So Matt had to tune wrong. And <laughs> so I, just, I tried out for a song, so I was playing everything a half step up. And then they tell me after I played the song, like, "Oh, these riffs are here. These riffs are here." Because the I was like. <laughs> That's not where it is on the damn recording. So in that <laughs> thing about that pressure too, because if you're playing something on one part of the neck and then in the audition, you're like, all right, well, well something sounds gotta, off. I don't think that bad. Now I got to play everything <laughs> in a different part of the instrument. Like, you know, that's testament to his playing. So it was like, all right, this dude just pulled it off. You know, he's, he's the bass player. It's so funny too, because I can honestly say with Brendan and Fleisch, there's never a time in the beginning of the band where it was like, there was another option. There weren't other people. It was just, we were, you know, a four piece for a while. And then it was like, we get, you know, even with Brendan, there was a drummer before Brendan, but it was, we were a bullshit band. When we got Brendan, it was just like, that's the drummer. When we tried out Fleisch, that's the basis. There was never a question of anyone else or anything. We were just like, that sounds correct. So that's why we did it. You've referenced the song Landslide a couple of times, which is by far my favorite song on the album. Maybe my favorite Vision of Disorder song in general. And I love that song so much because the whole time, 
you know, going back to everything I've said about it, the, the album just sounds so angry and like, you know, kind of a, uh, uh, this crescendo of rage. And also that song sounds like it's barely being held together. Like at any moment it could fall apart, you know, but it's also very precise and I'm sure that's all by design. So uh, I'm sure you uh, won't take that the wrong way either, or maybe you will and we'll fight about it. <laughs> I love that song. And also the coolest part is as, as it's building up, it ends with that single note riff, which really gets me going. And not only is that like the heaviest part, but on the heaviest part, that's when Tim is like crooning the most soulfully to just really conflict me. I don't even know if I'm angry anymore. I don't know if I feel cathartic. And uh, is that a song that resonates a lot with you guys too? Yeah, to this day, it's one of my favorite songs I've ever even brought to the table. Uh, that to me, and I think Brendan too, is one of his favorites. We, it's a, in my opinion, of that time and that record, that's the one that uh, it, it sums up the whole. Okay, this is going to be very hard to play, but still really original kind of thought process of like making sure that everything's changing. Uh, really, not repetition that much, but also that anger and kind of rage. It's it's everything summed up in that one song. If, the, if, the funny part about the rage part, I don't know if you remember this. There's an influence from when we were on tour with Earth Crisis. Do you remember this? The Florida thing? No, it would kick me. When he says, uh, show your face. face. <laughs> uh, there's a part in the middle of Landslide where Tim's like, show your face, whatever. And it comes as a reference, I, I think. I don't know, did he improv that? Yeah, I think it? he just th- threw in as a little tidbit for Love us. Love that. Uh, there, there's a, there was a time in Earth Crisis where we were on tour and, I think the, both bands like fought the whole audience because it's one place in Florida. And uh, at the time, I think Carl from Earth Crisis was like, shut your face. If you were going to say, what does the VOD riff sound like? I would say landslide. Like that's the quintessential VOD riff for me personally. On that song and on um, 12 Steps, there's a lot of like decay on the guitar. And now when you're telling me that you guys had to correct some of the... <laughs> The uh, the toning was that to mask that because it seems like they're it's kind of random and to only be on those two songs. It's it's noise, but like purposeful noise. Like it's, it, we're doing it on purpose. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, it definitely contributes to the chaos that we're talking about throughout the, all of this. But uh, I just noticed that it was only on those couple songs. I always remembered it on uh, Twelve Steps, but just guitar sound should be notably different on 12 steps because it is in the sour key of a which was very heavy at the time but it turned out to be everybody <laughs> <laughs> it's also different guitars so you know like i'm i'm using a uh like stratocaster in that tuning and the, the sour a, key of a is so funny <laughs> so the first time i ever heard a band tuned down to a was in a review for a band called rigor sardonicus and, uh, you know, they had a death metal picture of the, you know, it's always like the guy's head was back and it was, uh, it was like they tuned down to the sour key of A. And I remember thinking, A? Like, holy cow, <laughs> like, who the hell can play an A? An a? Yeah. <laughs> so low. But you know what's funny is I don't think if you hear those songs and the way Sardi recorded them, I don't think anyone would think, oh, that's the same tuning as like corn, new metal and all that crap. They don't sound it because of how um technical we're playing in those in those riffs that was yeah that was definitely something we wanted to do with we're going to tune down to a like you know like stupid corn or other bands who will remain nameless but we're going to not go 
you know, we're going to play like we play. And also, and also, I think the main reason of why is because we thought at the time there is nothing on the planet that could be done heavier than Sepultura Roots. Like they're the quintessential version of that simplicity of low tuning on Roots. In my opinion, still to this day, there's nothing yeah. that's heavier than that. I'll record. say that, that is another reason why we didn't like the sound of our first album because right before we went into the studio, they played us Roots before it came. You know, this is before this is right when we were signing with Roadrunner. We got to we got to hear Roots, and I remember we were just like, "This is the, like I don't know. We might have Maybe to start over. We might have to start over. Or something like that." Happiest <laughs> thing I've ever yeah. heard in my life. And then when our when we, we listened to that, and then we heard our album, we were just like. No, like we, <laughs> we want to sound like this. <laughs> I remember seeing, heavy. and it's funny too because I remember seeing Max in the hallway at Roadrunner and being like, "Like, dude, like, Roots is incredible." He's like, "No, like, I love that song Element." I remember, being like, no, he, yeah, he heard uh, Max loved the demo. We did our demo for Roadrunner. We did it Legend Studios, where we did our right as I mentioned earlier. Our, the, uh, yeah. the the these guys did the Yellow demo, but um, he got to hear Element and Six Six Six, which I think we released the demo version. On is that on Resurrecting Reality? It might be the B side, but we recorded those there. And him, Max Cavalera, complimenting us on. I think it was called. Uh, we called it. It's ways to destroy one's ambition. But I think at the time it might have been just called Six 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 or something like that. And it was like that song Six Six Six. <laughs> I remember also being like asking him specifically. I'm like because I wanted to know like how did you get that guitar sound on Roots? You know like what is it? I just remember his answer was so I couldn't. Uh, uh, I couldn't like take anything from it because I just was confused. He's like, a lot of pedals. Now he said, old Marshalls. He's like, oh, lots of pedals. Lots of pedals. <laughs> and I was just like, but then I looked down at his shoe and he and it was being held on by duct tape, and I got <laughs> I got confused. <laughs> Earth Price would always be like, you guys met Max Cavalera. Yeah, every time I meet him, he always says the same thing to us. This the real shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, so going back to you mentioned resurrecting reality. I don't want to neglect your question. Uh, that that was the uh, label's idea of getting us some street cred back in between our first album and our next album, Revelation, to put that out as like an in between release. So that was unheard of for Roadrunner to actually well, uh, to, to mean to talk about Roadrunner. They owned all our. We sold them all of our publishing for five hundred dollars and the rights to all of our merchandise for five hundred dollars. We we had to pay them, you know, Blue Grape was there. That's the important part of Meet Meet history is that they also owned Blue Grape. And you in order to sign to Roadrunner, you had to sign their merchandise deal. They forced us to buy our own merchandise from them. So it was eleven dollars a t-shirt, sweatshirt was twenty dollars, uh, our windbreakers that we sold were twenty-five. So we were pretty much losing because we couldn't go to a hardcore show and sell shirts, we sold them for twenty. People would, would flip out that we were sell out selling shirts for twenty dollars, and um, the, our jerseys were like thirty dollars, and they they forced us to to buy them from them. Also, our publishing to those two albums, like you know those two those those were just re released on vinyl. I don't know if I ever told you this. We weren't told they were coming out. I never. None of us got a copy. We see no anything from that, and there was no there's no anything. <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's how so you know that's how that label at that time is criminal and you know to say we're idiots for signing for that i signed to roadrunner i was 18 years old and that was my dream come true sepultura road fear factory typo <laughs> and you know if you're 18 and you're and you have a contract for for your favorite 
label, are you going to not sign it? Roger Murray from Knox the Front somehow got my, my parents' phone number. <laughs> and right before we signed the Roadrunner, he called me up and he was like, don't do it. Don't do it. And I was just like, and I'll remember to this day, my mom was like, Matt, Roger Murray's on the phone. Like, <laughs> like, what the fuck? You know, like, it just didn't. Every band was like, I heard it's bad. Don't do it. Don't do it. And we were all like, what do you mean? Like, I, I thought everyone was just like jealous, you know, like, well, we're yeah. signed. I was, I was like, what, what? Fair fact would be separate. Like, now Fair I think, now I think you know? about it, I'm like, wow, Roger yeah. Murray was like really being a great guy. Yeah. Helping us. <laughs> People and, were like, giving us real advice. <laughs> actual real, like industry advice. And like, we're dumb young kids being like, no way. But so, so anyway, going back to this whole resurrecting reality thing, which I yes. this is not the fourth time. Um, you know, we, we were such more, we were so traumatized by the poor production of our debut album <laughs> that we thought that there was no producer out there that really could understand. Us. <laughs> so we went to demo some songs. First, we went to Smash Studios with our good friend Kraus. Oh, and right, right, right. And we attempted to record. Uh, just clone, just clone, or do we do two songs? Uh, we did two, but they sounded. So I don't remember bad. if we did. I don't remember what we did, but we had our friend. We brought to the studio because we were like, "This guy, he he got he a good sound." Like a he, well, he he got a good. He he placed with his band. He placed the boombox in a really good spot in, <laughs> in the in the studio, and he recorded a good um, sound for his own band. So we thought he'd be good enough. Who is his band? Producer. I don't know who Klaus is. Uh, <laughs> Klaus. Now he. Uh, the band actually ended up becoming a band called Amazing Device. I don't know if you ever heard of. Yeah, heard your of brother's them. in it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had a good ear and he had the right idea, so we thought, listen, let's give, give this guy a chance. <laughs> <laughs> so we went this has the, been the problem. Beauty's done their whole entire career. We always been, so we go to the studio. First of all, it takes like four hours because a radio station keeps coming through the um, snare drum uh, microphone, like it won't stop, and we can't start recording. But anyway, so we finally get it going, and then um, we record the songs, and then the guy, the engineer in the studio was kind of insulted that we brought Kraus along with us. So, like, <laughs> first he goes, all right, so uh, it was time to mix it. He's like, you know, when you did a demo back in the day, you record it, you mix it, same day, right there, sitting right there in the control room. So he, uh, <laughs> Josh is like, he's like, so how do you want to do, do this? First Josh goes, what I don't want is, I don't want a lot of compression. <laughs> and then the guy goes, can I ask why? Because <laughs> I don't want it to sound compressed. <laughs> and then we knew we were in trouble. So then the guy just wheels his chair back and points yeah. to the uh, to the you know to the the uh, mixing board. Kraus sits down and starts turning knobs. And then anyway, somehow we can we convince ourselves that it was. <laughs> It was good enough. We brought it home. We went into the basement. My brother, we always called my brother's basement. It was the basement of my mom's house, my brother's room. We were like, yo, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds sick. And we hit it play on the, the table. I heard it. Was, <sighs> you couldn't even hear it. It was so, it was so really embarrassing. Bad. So that, so we had another friend, but that comes out sounding good. Who, who kind of knew what he was doing. He worked at Sam, not to, you know, insult Sam Ash, but the whole Sam Ashy thing. He previously worked at Sam Ash and had some experience. Uh, he could record. Yeah, he knew how to record. Yeah. And we, again, we were like, we need to work with a guy we know. because Nobody knows what we're really trying to do. <laughs> and we made the, um, we did Soulcraft. 
uh, and um, clone. clone and but the Soulcraft we did with him isn't the version that we released on the Bad Brains tribute. I think that was what we did with Greg Gordon. Yeah, yeah. Because we re-recorded Soulcraft with Greg Gordon, who was the engineer on it, right? And this all like at that point in our lives, eight months is like three years worth of yeah. stuff. Like we record, like we record, we did all. We were still playing shows, kind of here and there throughout that whole period. There's just a lot. A lot going on <laughs> during that time. But the uh, the Revelation Records Resurrecting Reality 7-inch was kind of a way to, to, to keep us grounded in that hardcore scene so we could kind of re reset and be respected again. So the singer for Super Joint Ritual is also on this album? Yes, he's also a yeah, Super Joint Ritual. And uh, what else is he in? Scour. And uh, what else Down. is that guy? down yeah so um all right so that was a connection we made on uh ozfest well well here's another thing we were also we finally had managed so by the time we got to ozfest we finally had management and um we had this manager sandy boardman who worked under concrete management which shelter's manager which she also managed shelter they were um they worked uh concrete management managed pantera and white zombie so, um, you know, that was a, a connection we had to Pantera. And so on the um, Pantera tour on the OzFest, we did connect with, uh, Phil. with Phil. He would come on our bus at night and hang out because, he, you know, he used to he actually used to tour. The, the Pantera guys would go off in their buses and he would spend time because he was kind of I mean, I don't know. Tour, they had a female tour manager, Neurosis. He was kind of seeing her. So he'd hang more with the, you know, he was one of those guys. I hang with the, with the, with the second stage and the roadies. Cause I'm a real, I'm a real man. <laughs> so he'd come hang out with us and we would actually do, he'd come on the bus. He'd uh, party with us yeah. and we would, we would listen to like TV theme songs and guess the theme song. And he'd be like, <laughs> you'd guess the theme song, right? And you'd get the fill of different strokes, but they hit it off. So, which was good. So Tim, and then Tim went for, um, Phil used to do a, um, uh, so horror, uh, yeah, like a, a haunted mansion thing in Louisiana. And he invited Tim down on Halloween to work, to like work there and like scare people, which is, yeah, I guess a lot of people don't know, but, uh, the Phil Anselmo house of horrors. <laughs> but, uh, so while he was down there, but he asked him if he'd sing on the album. And I think we had to pay him $1. There had to be an official exchange of money for it to be done. It was only like $1 or $100 or something like totally just arbitrary just to make it like an official uh, deal. But the funny thing is, is that that actual song isn't even like written until like the week that Tim goes to New Orleans. If you remember. Yeah. So we found, I think we found out he accepted to do it. And then we were kind of like, all right, I guess Shit. we need, I guess we need a song to, uh, I guess we need a song for him to sing on. So, and we threw that together really quick. Yeah, the funny thing about that song is that literally... By the River. By the River, yeah. The the, uh, the verse in By the River predates Fleischy even in the band. It goes back to a song that we had in the like, high school days with me and Kennedy uh, called Clear the Way that I remember on the 8-track we had. I remember uh, at the time with the Eddie Van Halen guitar, I... I I did a weird tuning on landslide that I also do on the, the, the by the river track. And uh, it's just basically taking your B string and tuning it a half note higher. So every time you put your finger flat, you're having a dissonance of, of notes. It sounds like uh, just, uh, you know, uh, wrong. It's, it's, it's uh, out, of, out of tune. 
So uh, I remember just playing the old riff on the four track and then playing that dissonance under it. And sure enough, that became that verse in By the River, which is one of my favorite things in the whole record. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you, the, the, the surprising thing was always like, oh, we, we, we put not much effort. We threw this yeah. together so fast and we, and we love this song. Even and another, the last riff is like. Yeah, and I was going to say, that's another quintessential VOD riff, if you ask me. And that's, that's the Maddie. That's another quintessential VOD. That happens, though, if you remember. Only because we had played it a few times. I remember practice and then like Tim had done at the end of the song, this like ridiculously long scream thing. And we were all still resonating. And it was like, okay, it feels like the next part happens. And I swear to God, there's no other version of that riff. That's just what happened at that time. It just, and I can say that about almost all of Imprint's kind of chaotic moments is it's just literally what we played at the time, improv style. It's not like, uh, Oh, let's work on this. Like at that moment, it was just dun 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 dun. dun, dun, dun. That's right. That's why some of those reps, yeah, they do, as you described, sound like they're hanging on by a thread, fall apart, and uh, they literally could fall apart. Because <laughs> it was like, what did you just play? It's like I don't know. Like I think it's this. <laughs> And do you want to take this time to apologize for all the metalcore that you influenced with that ending riff on that song? <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. It's been and- painful. <laughs> <laughs> now, famously, of course, that you've left out is that in addition to the dollar money exchange for For the River, For the River, for By the River, that you got Phil Anselmo a pair of autographed boxing gloves by... Yes. WrestleMania 14 special guest enforcer, Mike Tyson. So how did you acquire these gloves? It was uh, one of our best OzFest moments was at, uh, with Aunt Phil's bus watching the uh, Tyson. Yeah, so uh, Tyson Holyfield. Holyfield, when he bit his ear off. We were, we were actually in Vegas. So that was the day of OzFest Vegas. UNLV Stadium. We played outside in the parking lot day, that day. It was over. It was 110, so I remember. Um, there was two shows where, I mean, that was one of them where the uh, Brennan put his foot, because he used to play barefoot on his hi-hat. He was in the sun. He was like, ah! Like, it's, <laughs> it burned his foot. But we happened to be in Las Vegas the day of the fights, but Pantera really? got it on their, they ordered the pay-per-view on, on the bus. pay-per-view on the bus. So, like, it was almost like we were, you know, I don't know, I was a big boxing fan also. Like, it was seeing how infatuated he was with boxing. So almost like it's cooler, I think, that he's on the on the record. And to give him a gift like that, it's kind of like, okay, look, he's something he actually likes instead of just being like, you know, here's here's $5,000 or something, you know. I think it's much cooler. And I, from what I remember, even seeing him afterwards, he's like, I still got those gloves, bro. You know, it, was, it was like, uh, it was always, you know, something you remember. So, But also, so going back to this concrete management connection to Pantera is, um, so after OzFest, we were supposed to go on tour with Pan and do an arena tour with Pantera. So I was supposed to be our leading to, to the Pantera arena tour for there. I think they would put out that live album uh, official something 101 proof or something, whatever the hell it was. But um, one day we come out of the bus and we see Vinnie Paul <laughs> with his arms around Raina kind of just swinging her around in a circle, you know, a band she's in. Um, the look of love was there. And, and uh, within a week, we had found out that we were off the tour. Well, first, I was going into the bathroom one morning, and Phil grabs me and just goes, 
all right, man, just, just don't blame me for ruining your career. <laughs> and he's like, just keep doing what you're doing. Listen to bands like Discharge instead of Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> and I was like, what? And then <laughs> we all took that as like, all right, I guess we're off the tour. Yeah. And we were off the tour. Yeah. We were replaced by our arch nemesis. But again, Pantera, the rest of the band, I think, did because it was like that whole Phil thing. If you're friends with Phil, then you're not friends with the rest of the band. And, uh, you know, I, I think um, Vinnie Paul is like the Lars, right? was like the Lars of Pantera. So he makes the decisions of who's, who's going to be torn with them and who's going to be uh, doing stuff. And like, because Phil would spend time with us, those guys like didn't like us because it's like the whole, you know. Yeah, but there's other things too. I mean, we were, we were pretty fucked up. We were like, in those right, days. I'm not even going to talk about yeah, yeah, I mean, about didn't you get thrown <laughs> off of OzFest like the first day or something like that? It's yeah, not we, like this was the first strike against you as the ring. <laughs> We were the craziest of, of all of them. And there's not- reasons why in our <laughs> in our fun times we got along with Phil and Selma also. At the time, we were kind of raging. Like I said, we were part of the New York rave scene. Stupid stuff was going on. So when when Neurosis starts uh, yeah. being scared of you guys, then you <laughs> you know maybe you got some problems. That's cool though. That like you said, that there's like a a backstory to why you would get. It's not just like Phil likes Mike Tyson. You guys are in Vegas while he's getting his he's biting ears off. I mean. Also, the sickest time, I, and I can say for Phil, too, that was one of the funniest things to see. Like, it's like Phil and Somo reacting to the fight going on after Tyson bites Holyfield's ear. It was like that, the weirdest just, moment. Scotty ends there. That he's just the, like, what the fuck's going that's on? the here? weirdest moment in sports. One of the weirdest moments in sports history, right? Like a guy actually biting a part of a guy's ear off. Like, and we're in this. It just was just such a week. Just to, be, to feel like, oh, this is happening, like, right here. Like, what? <laughs> it was just Everybody a weird day. What a weird day. We we started off the imprint tour playing a lot of the songs. And then like, because people weren't like moving to them much, we were like, oh, these aren't good for live shows. It's like, we have to, we have to have a pit, bro. Like we can't just have, you know, <laughs> we can't just play the songs that we, you know, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it also wasn't, it also wasn't received poorly, but it was definitely received uh confusingly maybe like it was people were a little bit like well what is this yeah people that like the first album necessarily weren't into this but you know over time i think it's matured and and people started to yeah people as the years went on more and more people were like oh that album's great you know but right at the time it, it caught people kind of off guard and and um you know we wanted to we thought it was a we were so proud of it and again that was another quick touring cycle roadrun was just like no we want you guys to go into the studio and make another album which was probably the right advice because when bands are going through that, if you look at most bands, it's like when they're having a, a, a hot streak, it's like, just get them in and have them do as much material. It's like, when you look back at the history of bands, it's like, yes, they should really just do as much material, record as much material as possible during those, those hot years. You know what I mean? And, and they were right. And, and our budget was going to be, was our third album was going to be really good. We probably could have got like a sweet producer and uh, you know, but the record was, it's weird too, because I feel like at the time we coming post uh, imprint, I think it's like almost we weren't even ready ourselves just because of how crazy uh, the process was for imprint. You know, like the whole thing, it's very, we're very chaotic at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the song Clone, which like we talked about is on that seven inch and kind of a, an earlier track, the version on that seven inch is a, a little bit more standard VOD, but it almost, it, it borders on like a rap rock on the album version. 
And, uh, you know, going back to me saying, you know, what I know Dave Sardi from is doing the Orange Nine album. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something that you were conscious of. And were you um, uh, like you were no. very you were rebellious, like you did not want to be a new metal band, despite the fact that you are the pioneers of the genre. So did you yeah. want to not have that song on there no. at any point? Well, I'm going to tell you that you are influenced. You are post influenced by hearing that song as rap rock. Now, but that but, song too is funny because I think at the time, again, I, in the studio playing it live, I don't really recall Tim like sounding like he was rapping. Clone could be one of those things because it sounds like <laughs> Tim's rapping. It does, you know. To me, but, I, I I don't I don't necessarily think that that's um, one of the weaker songs on the record. I think it's just a different. It, it song never came out the way like it never even on imprint clone was the song we had high hopes for and it just never for some reason when we recorded it it never came out the way we want that's one of the it's not disappointing because it's not a bad song but we always had really high hopes for it and it just never quite uh came off like the way we we thought it was going to oh you know like we were in the and when you're in the midst of it you don't know that it's turning into this like um you know big shorts and uh arne sunglasses How's it feel we'll whole, to be stealing from the one who feels? Right. And isn't the whole ending fake fuck, fake fuck, yeah. fake fuck, fake fuck? <laughs> the best line. So maybe, you know what? Maybe, it, maybe he was doing a little bit of the uh, rapper in there, and I always interpreted it differently. Jada Bloom, the ending of the album, seems like a song that... We are called Java Bloom, which uh, a brewery named after the song Jada Bloom. Wow, that is incredible. Well, then that even further uh, reinforces my theory or the simple fact that you guys are very happy. You look, like that song a lot. seems like even throughout all the years, you know, that's maintained its place in the set list from Imprint. And, you know, it's the big album closer. It seems like kind of like even I mentioned at the very beginning, it has a somewhat different tone for the rest of the album, but doesn't feel like out of place or weird. It's just like, it, you know, it's a, it's the resolution of the journey you've taken throughout it. it. seems like it maybe even has some extra elements in there, like an organ or something like that. It's got some sort of uh, synthesized or, or electronic uh, ending. So tell me why you guys love that song so much. Uh. To me, it's it's nice to have like almost like a, a breath uh, on on that song. Like it's like the verses are just like they're these. Uh, I feel like in the verse of that song, which I call the verse, the clean part, whatever. Um, we achieved what I think we were always trying to uh, go for an alternative because Beauty was always into like Chains Addiction, House Chains, all these things, but and Radiohead especially also. But I feel like in that verse, we actually achieved an alternative sound where if you just play that verse, it doesn't sound like um, metal or hardcore or anything. It just sounds like alternative. Um, Everything else sounds like crazy, screaming, you know, maniacal shit. But um, to me, that's why that uh, means so much to me, I think, is that we actually organically did that. Again, it's not a thing that we uh, intended. It just literally happened that was one of those songs that came together and like that was one practice yeah it was one of those songs where we just put it together in literally one one day and and it uh 
it, I think it surprised us all that it actually, and, and it, we had high hopes for it and it came out. It was one of those things where, oh, it came out even better than I thought it was going to be. And I think we achieved something there because we always had, not to go back and, and this is my psyche now, is that we had a lot of peers, especially from where we came from on Long Island, that had this whole um, like sunny day real estate influence. And they were kind of elitist in the fact that we had kind of a meathead fan base mentality with the mosh pits and the uh, the tough music and the VOD for all my boys type uh, thing. But I think we really proved that we could also have a sensitive, a soft, sensitive side and it be um, tasteful and not cheesy and kind of touching upon something almost new um, in a way. You know what I mean? Like, we, we, And I felt like it, it just really you know, we, we just were successful in pulling that off. And, and it was I something think, to be proud of for in, us. In the end, it's funny because in the end of that song, the reason why it's going as long as it is, is I, I think because of Tim being that style of vocalist where you don't really know what he's going to do, um, really from each practice to the next, it really did kind of change. Um, it, I think it happened because of Tim himself going off on almost a tangent of his own thing. His own improv. Like I even when I heard that the first time when it was recorded, I didn't know Tim was singing that way. And, you know, it was a surprise to me. Most of the vocals, to be honest, uh, the sung vocals. Now, I, I remember when he was when he was practicing in the studio and I was like, I heard some really good stuff. And I remember yeah. thinking like, oh, shit, I hope he like remembers that. I hope he yeah. remembers that. that comes up. It doesn't sound like the first, like. It's so paranoid again. The the uh, the damage done by the first album. Like I hope it doesn't sound like Tim that. Tim like, is so improv that <laughs> he sometimes wouldn't remember what he did that was good, and it would be like sometimes okay, well that's similar, but it wasn't as good as that one time you did this. That's you know? why I swear the first time we played Element in the Baldwin Studio that the first verse he had was even better than the one we recorded. <laughs> yeah, it had more of like a cadence. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um no I, I you know going more into this I, I really feel like that was one of those songs that we were proud of and i think in our sets too it's kind of like we always have this non-stop like I, when we play sets you know some people like to have the non-stop banger after banger after, like you have to you got to lighten it up you got to slow it down you can't just have a set of you know one after the other of all these high tempo high tempo you got to breathe a little bit you know and it's one of those songs that let but that you can take it you can take a deep breath i also feel like there's bands that uh you gotta be willing to do it and have the balls to do it and at that time i think because of how heavy imprint is i think it takes like you you have to be as crazy as imprint is to be able to pull off the lightness that is the jada bloom moment and i think it takes a certain uh you know, amount of time for a band to be able to want to do that and actually take that chance. You know, it's not just, you're not just doing the metalcore bullshit like we were talking about before that you're just going to sing a part here. You know, it's artistic. It's an artistic it's, decision. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the first time that um, someone combined Phil Anselmo with Sunny Day Real Estate. So after the album comes out, the tour of the, the triple meep attack of Sepultura touring for Against, Earth Crisis, touring for their one Roadrunner album, Breed the Killers, and Vision of Disorder, touring on the newly released imprint. Can you tell me about that tour? I know you're big Sepultura fans. I know that this is kind of a different version of Sepultura, but it's still, they're still the kings. I mean, Sepultura 
really for me, like these guys love Pantera and Slayer. Yeah. And like my thrash band is fucking Sepultura. Like they were always, you know, even though they, you know, not to say anything bad about Pablo, but, um, you know, they don't have a big bass representative. But just those riffs for me are like, and the, you know, it's really Igor for me. I mean, the riffs obviously are sick, but the combination of um, the feel Igor gives their riffs always connected with me. So Sepultura for me was always, I was like, oh, oh that's a thrash band for me. You know, it, like, it's funny too, because with me, I, I was, Obviously, you know, coming up in the, the metal first and the hardcore thing, you know, Biohazard, Madball, these things. And then I saw that Sepultura was obviously influenced by Biohazard, I think, on the Chaos CD stuff. A uh, little bit of influence in the riff there. And then, you know, you fast forward a few years later and like on that tour, I got to play Refuse Resist with Sepultura like, I don't know, I 10 so times, many times. Yeah. times. It's amazing. And it's incredible, you know, like to be able to feel and play with... Uh, Igor's drum style yeah. is just like holy I shit! It's real. We got to sound check element with Igor. Yeah, that yeah. place across from the Dom. I always forget what it is. The club across from the Dahmer Hotel. The rave in Milwaukee. Yeah, it was a really cool moment for us because uh, that's also our first real, I think, big tour that wasn't something like Ozfest where we felt the labels actually really putting some money into us being able to go on tour. And let us just be musicians instead of it being like, all right, well, you can get this kind of crappy van that will, you know, you're going to still have to drive. Like, that was our first real, like, uh, big Well, yeah, we felt experience. like they were support. Like, they were, you know, obviously three roadrunner bands. We felt like, all right, they definitely are behind this, this tour, you know? They, it wasn't like, oh, fucking not going to give you time to sound check or, it, you know, they were so accommodating. Everyone wanted to hang out. It was like very, very friendly atmosphere and everything. Like, And because I'm playing the Ernie, uh, the, uh, Ernie Ball, Eddie Van Halen, I, I find out that Andreas loves Van Halen. And I had, if you remember the time, best of Van Halen came out. Yeah. <laughs> and still to this day, I swear to God, Andreas stole my fucking No, he Van stole Halen. your Van Halen transcription. Book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. The book. <laughs> so still, still to this day, I know he's got that book. Well, you guys had already had camaraderie with Earth Crisis way before yeah, then, right? On the on the drip, and um, you know, we had never met them prior to those tours to support the the first album. Down and so, we, right? yeah, and no, no, we first met them and did some dates, just us, and we were very we didn't know because we only heard Earth Crisis. They had these militant, straight edge vegan guys, it's like we were like, I don't know. In our first show with them, we were uh, played in Connecticut. It was this place called Tuxedo Junction. The bad experience for me because I was only 18 or 19 and you had to be 21 to actually go in the club. So I was able to play the show, but then I had to go sit in the restaurant for the after soundtrack and for the rest of the show, I had to sit by myself in the restaurant. But um, before Earth Crisis went on, like the promoter, well, the promoter was a straight edge uh, vegan guy, came, came on the stage and was like, What do we want? Animal liberation. When do we want it? Now and like every, the whole crowd started screaming. I was like, "This is these guys are probably like you know like crazy. Like we're not. This is going to be a disaster. We're, we have so many dates scheduled with these yeah. guys. Like you know." But then we met them and they were like the most laid back. If there's ever a band, like, I think we can say we got along with most on tours. Probably either Earth Crisis or Candy. Yeah, they were. Like, it was like the same type of situation. Like we were just the same dudes, and uh, we were just really hit it. It was just surprising how much we hit it off with them, even though we're different. Like our personalities were just gelled so well with them so they were just it was just so much fun like we was, heard we're playing with earth crisis like, we'll yeah. play any show with earth crisis like they, they were just it was just always so much fun and it was such a good bill for the for the uh for the crowd too we think us and earth crisis is, is a sick uh bill you know and also it's like uh 
because Igor was really heavily into that whole uh, straight thing also. It was kind of like this. He had this hardcore, you know, affection for stuff. And Derek obviously came from the early days of the hardcore scene. That was, it wasn't like, we didn't feel like the left out metal, uh, you know, hardcore band. It was like, it all felt normal. There was nothing weird about that. Yeah, yeah. Now we all, everyone, everyone got, everyone, yeah. everyone got along. And it was a good, um, great tour. Yeah, it was, it was, it was something, you know, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. And so the first show we pull up to um, Sacramento special. So we, we had toured with Will Haven, who they're from Sacto um, on, you know, the, the summer before right. we pull up, they bring special guest Chino Moreno from uh, the Deftones who had just put out, not uh, just put out, but around the front, we were big fans of, but uh, so he came and hung out um, with us, with Will Haven on, on our, but it felt like a big, it was like, Oh, this tour is going to be great. Like, you know, celebrity guests every night. Big, big crowds from there. All right. So then we played uh, San Francisco. <clears throat> Matt got a visit from uh, Father John. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> oh, my God. But uh, so San Francisco, like um, Mike Cotton's there to do a song with them, you know, from uh, Roots. He sings on a song. He showed up to do a song with them. It, uh, oh, uh, freaking uh, Newstead was there. I don't know if he came out and played, but I remember think, thinking he was a lot smaller than I thought he was going to be. And um, so anyway, we hadn't seen Rob Flynn since the Ozfest. He shows up to the Sepultura uh, show and he comes on our uh, on our bus. And um, <laughs> we had already. So. So, you know, by the time we're a year past uh, Ozfest and we're we're in imprint mode. So, you know, we're going to uh, we're shopping at, uh, you know, at uh, thrift stores. You know, we're uh, <laughs> we had evolved past the whole uh, the Jenko, yeah, uh, the Jenko Adidas, uh, you know, look. And so Rob Flynn, he comes on the bus, and one of the things he says to Kennedy is, "You gotta get yourself a pair of these." And he grabs his pants and goes, "Jinko!" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is we just found out that uh, Logan had left. He's like, "We got our room." <laughs> no, no, well, you don't realize that at that time. Also, Rob called my house and tried getting Kennedy. Yeah, he tried to get. Yeah, he did yeah. want Kennedy. He did want Kennedy. So anyway. Talking about Machine Head, there is one man who tuned down lower than the sour key of A. And his name is Logan, and he changed his name to Low G at one point, if you remember. And he did tune down to Low G. In medication. <laughs> yes, medication. It was uh, the, blunt. the blunt, B. Blunt, who was in Day in the Life with my brother. He grew up across the street from me, one of my old uh, best buds. Crazy, but yeah, yeah. That was just to play Roseland. I know for me because I had seen, you know, growing up, that was the place to go see bands for me in uh, yeah. the early to mid nineties. Roseland party was, was like, I'm happy to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> so this go, so the, the tour after that we did was with Anthrax, and talk about an exhausting tour. So we did this that in a Winnebago, driving ourselves. The first we went from so in the first six days. I don't even know how we did it. We went from New York to Ohio to LA to Boston. Like, I don't even know how that's possible, but, we, but I, I think it was six to eight days. Yeah. So, and we were driving. We're on, I don't even LA. know how we were alive. We were in but, LA on the Friday and we were in Boston on the Monday. So, but, and that was with us trading off driving. We didn't have a driver. Anymore. We didn't have anything. And, um, you know, that, and that tour was, was, Totally, totally exhausting, you know. The, the and, routing on that tour was made for a bus. We were driving ourselves. 
from the anthrax we did a long tour with anthrax we went to we did a long tour we did japan australia new zealand australia japan and that was like 35 days that was a long a long one on the imprint tour and that was another exhausting one brendan got food poisoning in new zealand he ordered the cajun catfish at the club which wasn't a good idea and he like he was puking so much i thought he was we should take him to the hospital i don't know what the hell's wrong with us but he was puking for like three days straight. <laughs> I thought he was going to die. Is that the Australian tour that we stayed with people, like in their houses? Yeah, no, in New Zealand, we ended up staying at people's, at these kids' uh, houses. Like hardcore kids. Yeah, we split up to two, uh, two crews. And they really, it was funny. I remember they really wanted us to be like hardcore purists. Yeah, well, the one, yeah, the crew you stayed, went we with, so were like, they wanted to be like, you know, they thought we were going to be like, um, like, because we were from New York, they thought we were going to be like gangsters or something like that. And I remember the kids we were staying with, they were, the only American TV shows they had were like Ricky Lake and Jenny Jones and Jerry Springer and stuff. And they were like, are all Americans like this? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, no, this is so weird that this is what you want. So you tour extensively for Imprint. You come back. And of course, there is a third Vision of Disorder record from Bliss to Devastation, but it is not on Roadrunner. So how did that relationship end with Roadrunner? We had caught wind that there was going to be a lot of change happening. And uh, I think the guy's name was Derek Sussman. He was this big guy from, uh, I want to say Warner or something. I thought the guy from Gentle Giant took over. Was going, to, was going to come in and he was going to purchase a big portion of the label. And he's going to be a big part of the new uh, movement of Roadrunner, the next level of Roadrunner. And uh, just based on the experience we had had, it seemed like there was no real intent for us to be a priority at the label. And upon talking with each other, I think we all realized like, we just got to get out off this thing and whatever the fuck happens happens, but we got to figure out a way to get off the label. We, we like tricked. I want to say we tricked the label into almost releasing us. And I always remember to this day, me and Kennedy sitting in that room when it was Monty and the new label guy and someone else. And, uh, we were basically just telling them we wanted to go back to being that total PC hardcore band resurrecting reality even using it as, as an example you know like using it almost as, as a weapon towards them like all right well we want to be just you know playing on the weekends not really torn anymore we're gonna go you know not take it as serious and and it works but i do remember at the time in that meeting monty looking at us and being like you fucks like i know you're you're up to Look, something they, they, one it, it could you know they did agree surprisingly to give us back our merchandise from yeah. i wasn't at that meeting but i heard that after and i was like oh we still agreed to we still agreed to the release after they changed that, after they, right, changed right. that they were supposed to give us like at the time i, I think it was like 150 grand budget for the next album recording budget which was a lot for us at the time so i remember thinking like oh we can get like any producer we want we should but they give us a merchandise <laughs> Because, you know, you don't want to think, you know, it's a scary thing to do is yeah. to be like jump off a label, right? Without, you know? Yeah. So it, it worked because I think they just saw it as, okay, well, I, I don't know. I, I never really thought Case, we were his favorite band anyway, to be honest. So uh, at that label at the time when we were signed, it really was if Case liked you, you got some cash. If, if Case didn't like you, it, it seemed like you didn't really get much pushed. So uh we were never really a favorite so i think that uh it just made logical sense to the label at time because they were going through a transition so um they signed the papers we signed the papers and you know that was it kind of ties and then from bliss to devastation not to talk about it too too much uh, although i love it and could talk about it for extended periods of time you know is 
almost very much what Roadrunner is doing, like in 2000, 2001. It's very uh, commercial comparatively to the first two records. It's uh, got, you know, choruses and hooks and those sick single note riffs and everything like that. So, you know, you talked about imprint being a direct response to self-titled was from bliss to devastation, a direct response to how imprint was received where you wanted to be like, okay, we'll show you that we can make this kind of record. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> also, Definitely. and also it's kind of like, finally you're in a situation of your career where you're like, all right, well, we don't want to make another imprint. We already did it. And if there's one thing I can say about bliss is that that's the record we had to make. There's no other option. There was no thought of like, yeah, but what if we do something like self-titled, like, like mixed with imprint? There was nothing of that. What happened was bliss just because we wanted to do that. We actually literally made that record because that's what we at the time were into. That's what we liked. Yeah, it was like, we want to play songs that are that are more fun to play and let's see if we can do let's see if we can just do some so let's just do some songs. Because after you do something like imprint, it's like, what are we gonna write a more complicated riff or repeat ourselves again and do the same thing again? It just wasn't interesting. And you know, there's a chunk of time that we're leaving out in between um imprint and for, from Bliss of Devastation and that's for the bleeders, which was really kind of like trying to take our songs back because you're also you got to go back to still where you know through all this touring we we put out the the record still and that ep i guess it's an ep it started as a seven inch we started going to countries and seeing it on cd we had got paid the, our payment for still was 1007 inches to sell ourselves for probably three dollars a piece and we had saw that we don't still don't know how much that sold throughout <laughs> the world how much it spread and those songs we didn't they weren't all, like we had lost our, our entire catalog wasn't ours so we had lost two full records worth of songs and everything before it we didn't own anything it was all someone else's so it was kind of like can we just do something right now in between to kind of reset and take our like music back from all the mistakes we've just made over the past five years like you know there was kind of like that whole it was kind of like a reset button and it was kind of like a, uh, something to give for the to, for people who were fans of us still. to give, put the songs back out, try to record them in a way. We recorded them where we recorded still with Tim Gillis. So we were like, this is a sound that people are uh, used to, not whether it's you know good or bad. It's something that they're used to. It won't be foreign to their ears. We can we can finally uh, take control over these songs and maybe get some money from these songs that other people are collecting money from and, and try to re reset. And also, I'll say it's also, I think, subconsciously a reaction to we probably should have put a bunch of those songs on our first record. Yeah, we we <laughs> and we didn't stupidly because, you know, young and our worldview of, of, you know, people are sick of choke. People are sick of formula, like not realizing that. Yeah, they're on like demos. Nobody knows. <laughs> like we're putting out a world right like, no, we got to do all new stuff. This is our first album. Not like. These are good songs that people will like. Put them on your first album. Which I also attribute <laughs> to that the label should have told us at the time. Right, right. But the you know? label's advice was uh, well, it was not always good. Like, for example, the original song order of Imprint, which I still think right. should have... Started Imprint was supposed to start the album. Talk about an album kick. Well, listen, I'm not going to argue with the bass kicking off the album. I mean, come on. <laughs> but the whole design of the album is supposed to start with the oh, guitar yeah, plug-in and we're kicking this and we're kicking this album off and it's the title track and we're, and we're kicking it off. But someone at the label, 
um, was obsessed with it not being the first track. And um, we couldn't decide. So we just said, Dave Sardi, choose the first track. And he just chose what you are. And that's what, and that's how I remember my TV being like, well, there's your hook. You like it, the first chorus, whatever that is. A hook schmuck. I mean, yeah, I know, I know, but it was so surprising to hear from Roadrunner at that time. Like, hook, you guys I care about hooks? I remember being in his office, though, he's playing on his speakers of Monty Connor stereo, you know, and being like, oh, I guess that means something. Right. You know, like, like it had merit to it. It's like, didn't you guys put out the origin of the feces? <laughs> like, you care about a hook and what, you know, like, what is something that you would do differently with imprint? Is it the track listing? Do you feel like that's kind of a, a missed opportunity? Yeah. The track listing. Um, I don't know if I, there's anything else that would be done differently. I feel like that was one of the, one of the albums we can look back on proudly and um, maybe not master as, as hard as it. Oh yeah. But that was at the time that was something different. It's hard to, yeah. yeah it's, it, at that time, it wasn't something we were going to argue with, you know, making it loud and, you know, I don't know. I think that's. I don't know. It's, it's funny because, like, you know, post list, which is like the most produced VOD of all time. Uh, maybe thinking, of, you know, Dave Sardi, you hear his band, even Barkmark and everything. His vocals are so cool. Uh, the way it's produced, uh, I think that maybe he could have maybe done a little bit more cooler vocal sounds at times. You know, it's, yeah. it's just so raw. Everything's just, everything's raw, but there's not much cheese on it. Yeah. Not much cheese, which is good. It's good to have an album where there aren't too many cringe. There's always a part in every album where you're like, there's not too many cringeworthy parts. There's some songs that didn't come out quite as good, but I don't know if we could change yeah. that. I would I would say the one thing we do is is try to record a couple more a couple more songs and maybe if saved a couple and then maybe put put something out or, or saved it over time and released them now or something you know something like that I, I always get jealous when fans always have extra material we don't yeah. you know we have some but not a lot i did speak <laughs> to uh someone recently about uh possibly uh the remix possibility of something of, of that i think it would be cool to hear almost like a modern take on that analog sound to see what could happen Matt, what is your favorite moment of this whole record process, whether it's a moment on tour? I know you got to play with Sepultura. That's really cool. Making the album, a song that you wrote. What's what's something of the imprint era of VOD that stands out to you as a, a real hallmark? Um, I can say it's 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 the just the capability of being able to go do nothing but music. That's the only time in our life I think we as musicians were able to not worry about working and just go to a studio even at one o'clock in the afternoon and just play it didn't matter there was no day that mattered it would be a sunday it could be a tuesday it didn't matter we were just concentrating on trying to write a good record and uh that to me is worth something but like the the idea of having a space that was ours during the day to make this crazy noise and everything was just, it was a lot of fun. I agree with that because it was like the, my favorite, most fond memories come from that time period. And it was like, it was, it was life was get up, you go to the gym, you go to practice. And then at night we would just, we would party every single night and just hang out with our friends. And like, it was just, uh, it was exactly the way life should, should be for a, uh, for an artiste. You know what I mean, and 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 I think the the album reflected that because we 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 just pounded out work in the studio and it was fast, 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 and it just feels like a, a reflection of that time when I hear yeah, it. Yeah, a know? real moment in the band's time. I think of like just what we were doing combined with what life was. Just it's nothing that's uh, there's nothing I would be different at all about that that part of it. 
I will close it out with my favorite Torah story from the Earth Crisis, Sepultura, VOD, Meet Meep, uh, United States, <laughs> 1998 extravaganza, was we were in some um, southwestern area town where the, the fans that showed up were not that familiar with Earth Crisis's way of, uh, of life, right? So they, they're, they're, they're there. They, hey, you guys, uh, tonight after the show, you guys want to party? So there's a bunch of people. It's us, and uh, we're standing in front of our bus. It's us. It's me, you. We got a couple uh, <coughs> bulldog brothers from, uh, we call them the bulldog brothers, <laughs> from Earth Crisis. And uh, we're like, hell yeah, show, we'll party <laughs> after the show. So they come <laughs> after the show's over. <laughs> we, we have a nice plan with the guys from Earth Crisis. So it's me, Matt, Brendan, and the bulldog brothers on the bus. You might not remember this. Remember we put on the song. Dance the night away by Van Halen. Dance the night. So the, the these uh, these guys and gals that want to come party with you guys after the show, knock on the How bus door. We put on we put on the lights, the mood lights. We had these like Christmas different color lights. We put on Dance the Night Away by Van Halen, and me, Matt, and the Bulldog Brothers start dancing like really sensuously with each other. <laughs> and they open Brendan opens the door and lets them on the bus. They walk up to the platform and see us dancing with each other. Dance the night away, and they all just look at each other, turn around, and walk up to us. <laughs> That's my favorite uh, story of that, my fondest memory of that story. <laughs> Thanks so much to Mike and Matt for sharing all those stories, man. Too cool. Imprint, 1998. What other questions could you possibly have? (laughs) Well, don't ask me. I gotta get ready for the next episode. And not only do I have to get ready for the next episode for next week, which is Karma the Burns, self-titled 1997 album, but also Patreon.com slash MeetMeetPod exclusively presents... Living with a Pod Complex, the Trustkill Records spinoff because Roadrunner distributed Trustkill for a couple years, and we're going to talk about it. And we're already talking about it. You can head over there. There's already an episode about Hope's Falls 2002 album, The Satellite Years, with guitarist Josh Brigham. And coming soon is a episode about Open Hands You and Me album from 2005 and we'll just keep on cranking them out like we've been cranking these out and I appreciate you guys turning that crank with me with the, your own personal jack in the box myself Ryan Rainbow and because the joker's wild you got to go on Apple Podcasts and leave a five star review you got to follow the show on Instagram at Meet Meet Pod to keep up with all the upcoming episodes and happenings and pictures of Jimbo. And you got to join me next week for Karma to Burn as we wrap up the year 1997, as we burn it down, as we burn one up. Until then again, my name is Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meep. And yes, that's the best that I could come up with. Bye.